0: All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? Merry Christmas to you. There you go. Let's try that again. Merry Christmas to you. It was kind of weak, you'd have to admit. It's great to see you today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. And we want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest with us, maybe visiting with family or somebody invited you today. We're really glad you're here I want to welcome you during this Christmas season, and uh, already so much of this service has done a great job of even forecasting a little bit of where we're going today. We're in a series called Intersections, and what we've been talking about during the month of this December is all about the idea that when Jesus arrived on the planet, There were things that were intersecting at that moment that we wouldn't have normally put together, but in the midst of that, God met our greatest need demonstrated by his love. And so we're really glad you're here with us, kind of week three in that series, and uh, excited to dive in. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter one, so the very beginning of the New Testament, if you want to find your way there. Also in your um, Trinity this week, you have some, a yellow sheet of Paper like this has our notes on it. If you want to get those out, that'll help you track with us a little bit as we um, kind of cruise ahead together. And it's fun to see all the festive colors, lots of reds and greens. Someone accused me of not being very Christmassy today, and I said, you've got to look at the socks. So, come on. It might be hidden, but it's there, so no doubt. But we are really glad that you're here today and just a great time to connect and be together. Like we mentioned earlier, really look forward to our Christmas Eve services. Really want to make sure that not only are you coming, but as you would prayerfully consider who you'd invite. It's going to be a great time. We had our tech rehearsal yesterday and a lot of great elements that are just not a normal part of a worship service that we get to enjoy and engage uh, for Christmas Eve. So we'll see you tomorrow, 2, 3.30, 5 o'clock. Well, as we dive in today, as we're looking at this, what I've really appreciated about this series, I love um, the graphic that even our graphic designer, Chris Petnick put together for this, because what I think it does is it demonstrates some, just a beautiful image of the idea of things coming together. In this intersection, what was true was our plight. We had a great need. It doesn't take much observation to notice that the world is very broken. And I believe that no matter where you're at on a spiritual continuum, maybe from you would uh, describe yourself as unspiritual to maybe someone who is walking with the Lord and uh, in in fellowship and in stride with the Holy Spirit, no matter where you're at on that continuum, I would say that you can recognize the brokenness and the, the problems that are going on in a fallen world. And the Bible says that that happened not just because, but due to our sin, Maybe not your personal sin, but the sin of humanity. And as a result, that brokenness is there. But what God did, ushered in at the arrival of Jesus, was his remedy. And what we've talked about throughout this series is, is that these ideas come together. They're not things you would normally pair together. Things like humanity and deity. Things like judgment and pardon. And today, as the video showed you, things like rescue and frailty. That's what we're going to look at today. What we're going to see today is all over the Christmas story, all over the narrative of Jesus' arrival, where all of these problems of all these things that could have gone wrong. And from our vantage point, even one small misstep could have blown the whole thing up. But that's what we're going to see and appreciate today is the incredible power and sovereignty of God in orchestrating events so that Jesus' arrival would not only happen just the way he had forecasted, just the way he had prophesied, but also it would happen in a way that would absolutely set up our ultimate rescue. So we're excited to dive in and look together today. Let's look at our now what idea. We say this weekly. It's not just a summary statement. It's an application. What am I supposed to do with this passage of scripture today? So on the screens and in your notes, embrace your frailties and engage your role in God's rescue of your world. We would often want to cover up or hide our frailties, but it says it differently today. Embrace your frailties and engage your role. Let's dial in number one in your notes. God's method of rescue was fraught with frailties. God's method of rescue was fraught with frailties. I try and say that seven times fast. That's not going to go well. Um, But alliteration is a lot of fun. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want you to think as we begin today, think of a a narrative, it could be even fictional, that you know of a conqueror or a champion. And think of the way that this conqueror or champion defeated others was through dominance, might, and fear. And then I'll tell you today, this is not that story. Not at all. Jesus' arrival into our world was absolutely full of all of these things that shouldn't have gone right, full of all of these problems that should have ended it before it ever began. And as we're gonna see today, this is the narrative that God used to change the world, all through the means of a baby born in a nothing town known as Bethlehem. If you've never heard the narrative of Jesus's birth before in true detail, and it's amazing as you interact with people today in our culture in 2018, how many of them really don't know this story. We've become very much a de-Christianized culture, and so where we might assume everyone knows the narrative, many don't, many that you do life with every day. And if they were to hear the narrative for the very first time, they would be absolutely stunned and overwhelmed by the means by which God would usher in his rescue. I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have chosen them. I wouldn't have done it at this time. All of these thoughts would come to mind as you hear this narrative. And the problem is, for many of us who have been hearing this narrative most of our lives, we've kind of read right over this. You've taken, like I've taken, a lot of things for granted. So I'm going to encourage you today, if you're new to the story, walk with us. If you're, if you're very familiar with the story, then kind of let that go for a minute and maybe put on fresh eyes and fresh ears and hear it in a new way. Because you will be shocked by the degree of uncertainties that God allowed to potentially be factors to his ultimate success. Beyond the amazing specificity of the Old Testament, these prophecies, the Messiah would come through David's line. The Messiah would actually be born in this town called Bethlehem. And of all the prophecies, Messiah would be born via a virgin. Those and dozens more all came together at the manger, but what about the X factors? What about the X factors of those who are closest to his arrival? What about that of his human parents? I think about what would a teenage girl do? I'm in the middle of raising a couple of them myself. Think about an angel coming to a teenage girl and saying, Messiah that has been awaited for millennia, I mean, we go all the way back to Genesis three, after curse, God says, I'm going to send one born of a woman who's gonna crush the serpent's head. So all the way back, this is what she's processing as an angel comes to her and says, God has chosen you to bring him into the world. And what is in you is from God. How does her head not spin for days? trying to fathom what in the world is happening. And I think of the one that she's betrothed to. It's even a stronger bond than a fiance. I think of Joseph, and and even as you hear it, think of it the first time. The first time Mary came to him and said, I'm so excited about getting married. By the way, I'm pregnant. By the way, not from you, but from God. How could he have done anything but... That's really clever. I've heard a lot, a lot of, of, of excuses, but that's a new one, God. But the wild thing is, and this is what we know from what we just read in Matthew, as Joseph heard this news, he was done. You read that just like I did. He was ready to be done with this relationship. He was gonna do it not in a way that was gonna raise a lot of notice and make her even more a spectacle, but he was gonna be done. But it was through a dream, through a vision of one of God's messengers, an angel who told him she's telling the truth. What she said is true and Messiah is going to come through her. This is where the rubber meets the road of this story something that we often read right over. And I want you to process that a little bit today. I want you to get into their sandals and think a little bit about what it meant for God's rescue to intersect with human frailty. Not just the frailty of a newborn, but consider the frailties of those involved with his arrival and how many other scenarios could have taken shape. I really love two songs that have become classics within kind of our Christian music uh, repertoire, And one is Mary, Did You Know? And the other one is Strange Way to Save the World. Both of them are written through the lens of Mary and Joseph. And I love it. I love it because it makes it so uh, relatable and, 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 and um, a way to connect to it as you're hearing these words. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? And from Save the World, now I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but this is such a strange way to save the world. I love these songs because they help us relate and connect a little bit to what Mary and Joseph might have been feeling and wrestling with. Now, we say often when we think about this reality, we think of the idea that that this couple was going to go through a lot you have to process a little bit when you think of the dream that Mary and Joseph, these angelic visitors, realize when it comes to X factors, what could have gone wrong. Even though having this unique, powerful, supernatural being in front of them, was that really going to be enough to push them to obey what God had designed because what they were going to face, what their son was going to face the rest of their lives was disgrace from the people who knew them. We read even in the Gospel of John later on that now Jesus is an adult. He's in his ministry. And even then, the stigma of being born to parents who had not been together yet in marriage still carried with him then. This was something that was going to really be a strong step of faith, a strong step of commitment, and yet they chose to do it. Now, we say that these, this couple came from very meager homes. They came from even a place that was relatively despised. They came from up in the region of Galilee. Galilee, hundreds of years before Mary and Joseph ever even landed on the planet, Galilee had had a negative reputation with those of true Israel that lived down south in Judah near Jerusalem. The kingdoms had divided and the northern kingdom became fraught with pagan worship, which, by the way, later on, so would Judah but actually we had this horrible reputation of really not even sure if they're really even of us, of, of really being Jewish, that's the region that they come from. And so the idea is, is that they were already despised before they ever even came into the city of Bethlehem. I wonder if you can relate, have you ever had that stigma of people judging you based on your geography, where you're from? I was thinking a little bit of my path of life and I think about the things that, where I've lived, I think about this, when I went to college and I remember telling people, they asked me, you know, like you normally would, where are you from? And i say, Yukaipa. And they go, that's a very odd sounding, bizarre place. And i try to tell them where it's at, that didn't help. And, and actually, that, that's, quote, stigma, came with my whole way through because I had one of my good friends. He would literally call me Ukaipa all the way through college. Hey, Ukaipa." So, obviously, he became Susanville. It just made sense, right, that we had, <laughs> Wonderful nicknames for each other. So coming from a place like Ukaipa originally and then moving to the high desert, the lush tropical lands of the high desert, absolutely. From there, we moved up actually to a lush place, but in Oregon, we moved to a city called McMinnville, which known to locals was McWareville. It was a dinky little town in the middle of nowhere outside of Portland. And then only to leave this beautiful forested land to come back to the high desert. People would ask us, what did you do wrong? How have you trespassed against a holy God that he makes you live there again? <laughs> and then of course, back to Yucaipa. So I remember even when you think of Jesus when he was gathering his disciples, remember Nathaniel? can anything good come out of Nazareth? In your notes, <clears throat> Jesus and his parents knew what it was to be judged based on their zip code. They knew that this geography issue was something, a stigma that would go with them wherever they went, and yet they embraced it. Another interesting thing about the, them as people, interestingly enough, we think of them as lowly and humble, but they were of the royal line. Look how it begins, Matthew 1, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, watch, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew and Luke both record the human lineage of Mary and Joseph and we find that both of them come from the house of David. And remember when the angel came to him and said, Joseph, son of David, I want you to know no one had ever said that to him before. Israel, a king, that had died 400 years prior. There was no such thing, there was no hope, All of Israel was under the thumb of Rome like the rest of the world. There was no way anyone thought about royalty connected to Israel. But Joseph and Mary came from that line. All but forgotten, completely not even thought of. Frailty in appearance, but veiled royalty. As the narrative goes, Joseph and Mary spent some time in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. They may have even considered a move there, but it wouldn't be long until their humble beginnings ended up in a headlong sprint to get out of town because of a murderous, jealous king. Magi from the east had come and demonstrated their observance of God's entrance into the world, but once they left, another dream was had by Joseph. Turn to Matthew 2, verse 13. When they had gone, meeting the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. "'Get up,' he said, "'and take the child and his mother "'and escape to Egypt.'" Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Watch this next line. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. No, no time wasted. And where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. One thing that I, and this is what I love about scripture, the Bible doesn't change, but our lives do. And so that's why we continue to go back to God's word and and read it and ask God, would you speak to me? Would you share with me what you want me to know? And one thing that really came off the page as I was studying this week about this passage was how many times Joseph had dreams from God and how he acted on every one of them. It's powerful, powerful when you just stop and consider that was God's mode of revelation. We've already looked at two of the four dreams recorded in Matthew alone. All, before that, all that happened before Jesus was even school-aged. Talk about frailty. When was the last time that you made a life changing, significant decision based on a dream you had the night before? And if you did, you probably regretted it. Would you take a pregnant girl to be your wife based on a dream? Would you uproot your young family and run to a new land? And not just any land, a land that was known for enslaving your people centuries before. Of all the places, God, that you want me to go, you're sending us to Egypt. Huh. Would you move back to Bethlehem based on a third dream, and then would you then move up to Nazareth based on a fourth? That's what Joseph's experiences were during this season. Most times when I have a dream, I just thank God they weren't real. I wake up in the morning and I go, oh, thank you, God. That's not my reality today. And we move forward, okay? Joseph made incredibly huge, decisive, immediate decisions based on dreams of ways that God revealed himself. And we would today collectively say, praise God that he did. Think if he wouldn't have acted and acted quickly, especially to the second dream. Got up in the middle of the night and they sprinted to Egypt. Sometimes when we read this Christmas narrative, we somehow skip over this part of Herod's incredible, just absolute, horrible actions of out of his jealousy, hearing that a king of the Jews had been born. I want to take away any possibility he's going to grow up, so I'm just going to slaughter every young child, two years and younger, every male to make sure he doesn't get to live. What a horrible, horrible part of that story, but something very true and something that demonstrates how very much, again, the frailties of this situation were so tentative, but in the sovereign God's view, never once was anything gonna happen to his son. It wasn't in spite of these frailties that were present at Jesus' birth, but through them that God ushered rescue into our world. Number two in your notes today, God's rescue accomplished what we so desperately needed. God's rescue into our world accomplished what we so desperately needed. One thing that I think is so very important to do at Christmas time is not leave Jesus in a manger. If you've been with us during this series, I think you can see that that's a significant value to us. We've talked about a lot of things, even though the manger was the initiation, the beginning, the arrival of what was to come. We've talked so much this month of what was to come. And the problem is, is that when we think of Jesus as this this very fragile infant in a manger and leave him there, we forget about the significance of his life. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record that Jesus would go on to live a sinless life. That is incredibly hard for me to fathom when I think about the sin I committed on the way here this morning. Sinless, He went on to offer himself in a sacrificial death. Absolutely aware he came with a mission to give his life away and was obedient to that and would be raised supernaturally on the third day. The Gospels record the rescue mission that Jesus came on and the way that he absolutely met the need that we had. If you were with us in our Colossians series we called Rooted, you might remember the end of the prayer that we looked at in chapter 1. Powerful words from Paul. Listen to these again. Colossians 1.13. For he, being God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love these two verses, they're very concise, but they speak so much of what happened in Jesus' arrival and ultimate rescue of us. And I think one of the reasons I like this passage so much, I like that it actually, the Greek words have been translated into the word rescue. You see, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I remember that we had basically made a very churchy word, this word saved. Are you saved? And I remember constantly thinking as people heard those words, they're just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. We're talking on the sidewalk. I'm fine. And it, and it kind of created this kind of Christianese version of, of the idea of salvation. But this is what I love. I love the word rescue <clears throat> because everybody gets it. And it speaks with power. Think about today as we prayed earlier in our service today for the victims and the families connected to those in the tsunami in Indonesia. I was praying on the way in today that God would send rescuers. Because there are people lost right now, hanging on, trying to figure out if someone's going to come and find them. They absolutely get the meaning of that word I need rescue. And though that's happening to their physical bodies in this physical state, Jesus came to bring a rescue that our souls needed even more than victims of the tsunami need today. He came to bring us rescue. Look at the power of this actual word. In your notes, the Greek word translated here as rescue means to draw out to oneself hear all of that definition, to draw out to oneself, meaning to rescue for oneself or to oneself. It implies removing someone from the midst or the presence of danger or oppression, but watch, delivered right out of and to or for the rescuer. Don't miss the power of this word. Listen what it says, to draw out for oneself, This is what it's saying. God did not just simply rescue you because you were in peril. Today, there might even be volunteers on the ground in Indonesia that are looking to rescue people out of their peril but have no connection to them and even if they're rescued, may not ever again. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God went looking and he rescued us to himself, for himself. We are the prize that was bought with Jesus' blood. That's such a powerful truth. God did this not just to pluck you out of peril, but to make you his child, to bring you into his family, to have a connection and a relationship with you forever. Look more This doesn't compare, we note that we've been rescued from, it doesn't compare to what we've now been made a part of. We were rescued from a dominion of darkness enslaved by a warlord to a kingdom ruled by the son that God loves. While our former leader had some power, he had no authority like that of the king that we now live under and live for. And while we were slaves previously, remember that word redemption, we talked about it last week, In the first century, when people were reading these words, when the church at Colossae got this letter, when they heard the word that we've translated redemption, they instantly thought of slavery. That's what the word was used for, to buy out of slavery. So we were previously slaves, but we're now heirs of the kingdom in which we've been brought into. And look at what the redemption paid. It covered, it atoned, it cleansed us from sin. And now we can know and walk in the forgiveness that Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for us. In your notes, though we celebrate how his earthly life began in a manger, we always want to keep front and center the king that Jesus became and what he accomplished on our behalf. We always want to keep front and center the king that this baby became. And it's that king that I want to remind you of today. Though at Christmas time we talk about the frailty, the fragility in a manger, the reality is, is that's how he arrived, but it's not how he's coming back. To me, one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible is Revelation 19. It says this in verse 11 I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Listen to this next line. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who the baby grows up to be. And though they awaited his arrival the first time, as long-awaited Messiah, we await his arrival the second time as conquering king. Now, I want you to be real with the statement I just read because it's a watershed statement. There is only two sides of which to fall upon. On the one hand, if you're here today and you would say, not because you're moral, not because you're religious, but because you would bank all of your security simply on what Jesus has done in your place. Then you hear the words of Revelation 19 and they resonate within you because you say, even so come quickly, Lord. You're coming back for me, for your own, and you indeed will rule through eternity. Yay, God. That's exactly what it leads us to. But I want you to see the other side of the roof. As the water lands and and it leans on this side and we say, yay, God, so is true on the other. That when you hear these words, they rightly so, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, if you have not yet found rescue in what his son has done for you, then the reality is you hear these words and you shake. And I would say today, rightly so, because you do not want to be on the other side of that king. So what do we say today? We simply implore like we do every weekend, respond. Respond to the invitation of mercy and grace that has been laid at your feet, no longer holding a fist and saying, I can do it on my own, instead bend your knee and say, Jesus, I recognize who you came to be and how you're coming back. I need you. That's what this text should move us to. Don't leave baby Jesus in the straw. Recognize how his power and might was demonstrated and how he will be demonstrated again. And realize that you don't want to be on the other side of that king who will rule for all eternity. Finally today, number three, The intersection of God's rescue and your frailty is his power on display through you. The intersection of God's rescue and your frailty is his power on display through you. What we've been saying throughout this series is that at the intersection, this is what I love about the graphic that Chris put together, at this intersection isn't just the intersection, but something new is produced. Each week we've looked at these ideas and a new thing emerges. And today what we say is in the midst of God's rescue and in the midst of your admitted weakness, your frailty, comes something powerful. God's power is demonstrated to people in your life who are watching, who are living with you. How awesome is that? This is something that we relish in the idea that God not only works in spite of our weaknesses but actually because of them. So people see the transformational power of Jesus in us. The wild thing is, is that I love this idea so much. One of my all-time favorite passages is the one I want you to hear and read today from 1 Corinthians chapter one. I want you to see how God actually looks for people who recognize their own weakness and frailty. 1 Corinthians one verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are, even, that are not, they don't even exist, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us Wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and there it is again, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I love this passage so much because it simply says in great clarity, God is looking for nobodies. His radar is up for people who understand their weaknesses, who embrace their frailties, and why? We read it. So that. They don't put any credit to themselves. They don't put any reliance upon themselves. It's all from God. This is great news for those of us who would say, man, I don't have much to offer. I don't know what God would want to ever do through me. You're exactly the person God wants. And to watch him show you what it is that he has in store for you is such a wild ride. It begins saying this, what you already knew, that you are a nobody, foolish, weak, lowly, even despised. And the best news is is that God went looking for you because it's people who know their own stories, who readily understand they have nothing to offer God based on their own merit or contribution. But God has graciously, graciously chosen to include them, to partner with them, to invite them into something that they can't ever take credit for because they know who they are. And they know it doesn't come from them. So this isn't a new value. I want you to see this. It's not a new value that God has simply post-Jesus, like in this new covenant. This has been going on for a long time. Abraham, his name meant father of many, was childless when God said, through you, through your line, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm going to give you descendants as the sand on the seashore, you can't even begin to count all while he was without a child. Moses was insecure in his speaking abilities, yet God used him to lead his people out of captivity. Judge Gideon, I love this narrative, he assembles an army together to go against Midian. They're in the thousands. God keeps weeding them down to 300 And he says it right in the text. The reason, and they had this incredible victory over Midian, and he says, the reason I did this was to demonstrate to you so you would be fully assured this wasn't because you're such great soldiers. It's because my power was unleashed through you. David was only a shepherd boy when he killed the giant Goliath. King Josiah was a teenager when he began to bring Yahweh reform back to pagan Judah. After having seen literally the fire of heaven rain down on the earth, after seeing prophets of this pagan religion, Baal, be murdered in front of him, when Elijah hears that a human woman who sits on a throne named Jezebel is out to kill him, he runs for his life, completely afraid, though he's seen the outpouring of God's power. Elisha was bald. I'm not really sure how that factors into frailty, but I just thought I'd say it. (laughs) Peter, Andrew, James, and John were simple fishermen, completely unschooled men who Jesus first found and said, follow me. Matthew was actually hated by his countrymen because he was serving the wrong empire. And we'll see a little bit later today, Paul had his own set of issues that allowed God's power to be seen through his weakness. I want you to know today, God still works like this through you because of your frailties, not in spite of them, to demonstrate his power and his presence in the lives of people who have a front row seat to your life, your relational world, the people you're doing life with. And do you know why your frailties are such a powerful tool in the hand of almighty God? It's because when they know your story, and they do, and when they know your frailties, that you don't hide from them, they can't help but see the transformational power of Jesus and what he's done in you. A lot of members of our staff team are reading a leadership book right now. that's just been so powerful in our experience. More than just something you read, you have to do something about it. I remember early on in the book, we read a chapter about vulnerability-based trust we simply looked around the room, our pastors and ministry directors, and said, are we just going to read this? I really appreciate a couple of voices spoke up, like, if that's all we're going to do, I'm not sure it's going to be worth our time. So the following Tuesday, we kind of jettisoned our normal plan, went to Mountain Grove Plaza in the morning, sat together for three hours, and simply shared life maps just simply what have been some of the high points, low points in my life and a personality test called Enneagrams. We just shared those around the group. Three hours and we didn't even get done. And guess what? The things that were shared were not, here's all my achievements. Here's all my accolades. Here's where I graduated from. None of that. This is what's been the struggle. This is where my life changed. This is the weakness that has been exposed that God is working through. That's what went on. And i got to say, the author of the book was absolutely right. Being vulnerable with one another actually draws people in, builds trust, doesn't repel people. And I love the way it's taking root and effect even on our team. In your notes, the people in your world need a vulnerable, authentic you, more than a gar- the guarded version that you're choosing to show them. For many of us, we still haven't allowed people in. And our frailties and weaknesses are things we don't want to admit, don't want people to see, but when they can see them, they actually see Jesus more powerfully through you. That's how Paul put it, 2 Corinthians 12, a passage you know well, verse 7, "'Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I kind of think these words from Paul would summarize all of those other biblical examples I just read through a little bit ago, whether initially or at least later on just like we, we come to the same conclusion, God, I need you. And if I will rely upon you and your strength, what you would want to do in and through my life, I can't even imagine. My power, here's a few phrases from what we just read. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking to Paul. Do you believe that? that God's power is made perfect through your weakness, or would you rather like to live out of the model that says, my power is made perfect out of my strength? I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. When was the last time you boasted about your weakness rather than try to cover it up or make excuses for it or not let people see what's really there? For when I am weak, then I am strong. In your notes, will you allow the people in your world to see beyond your version of togetherness that you want to keep presenting in order to see how God has produced such trust and reliance upon him? Would you allow people in with the goal that when they see your frailties, they will all the more recognize what God is doing and has done in you? That's the conclusion that Paul came to. That's the conclusion. All these other names I read about came to conclusions. Will you, will I recognize that God's rescue when it meets our frailty demonstrates his power like nothing else? And would you be a person this Christmas season who is authentic and vulnerable with the people in your world so they can see the Jesus you love so much? Here's our now what idea for this week, embrace your frailties and engage your role in God's rescue of your world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people that are so grateful for what your rescue has accomplished. We begin with that. We say thank you and the fact that you chose to do it in such humility and such frailty It speaks to us because it wasn't through intimidation or fear or might that you conquered. It was through simply a reliance upon the Father mirrored to us, our example. Would we walk in the same way? Not confident in ourselves, but confident in you, confident in our rescuer. You may be here today and you would honestly have to say, there's things about God that I believe, things about God I've, I'm aware of, but I've never really ever made a first step. I've never really responded to this invitation for forgiveness and redemption, and I have great news for you. Before you even leave your chair today, you can. It's not a bunch of classes to go to. It's not a lot of hoops to jump through. It just begins by saying this, Jesus, I admit, I admit I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I admit that the brokenness I see all around me isn't just around me, it's in me. There's a problem, I know that. But B, I believe. I believe in this God-man we've talked about today, this Jesus who came in such frailty but demonstrated such great rescue. He came and he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death he was raised supernaturally on the third day i believe that what jesus did somehow accomplished something for me credits to my account when i trust when i'm confident in what he did so see i choose i choose to say today i put my confidence my weight in jesus's rescue of my life and i want to live my life now out of his power according to his example You can make that decision today. You can know, not just intellectually, but at a true experiential, soulish level, you can know Jesus as rescuer. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much that Jesus accomplished our rescue. We give you great thanks today and pray in Jesus' name.